Uh, Jesus didn't have a problem with people that's in the streets. He had a problem with religious people. How can I help anybody when I'm not even when I was not even able to help my own son? I would never do that. I would never do that. And I became that in a matter of minutes when they took my pain pills away. And I said, I'm not where I want to be. But thank God I'm not what I used to be. Ugh. This is Faith in Your Recovery. I am Randy Davis. Welcome to the battle. Hey, welcome back. We're glad you're with us here on Faith in Your Recovery, our second year, episode number 58. And before we even move forward, I want to give you a special invitation to go back to episodes 56 and 57, as this is obviously going to be a three-parter. We have with us today Matt Pazarelli, former member of New York City's Colombo crime family. Um, his given name was John Franzese, the son of Sonny Franzese, the youngest son. His dad was New York's last mafia boss. John entered the family business as a teenager after his older brother Michael sat him down in a Chinese restaurant in Long Island and introduced him to their way of life. John Franzese Jr. would spend the next 15 years in the mob, but eventually saw his life fall apart due to alcohol and addiction. That's where we ended our last episode. He spent the 90s, 1990s, slumming the streets of New York City, begging for hits off crack pipes, sleeping in subway tunnels, and HIV positive from a dirty needle jabbed into his arm. He got sober on October 9 of 2001, and in his quest to clean up his life, eventually became an FBI informant, testifying against his father in federal court in 2010. He entered the Witness Protection Program and has lived in Indianapolis as Matt Pazzarelli the last 13 years. Welcome, Matt. Hey, Randy. Good to see you again. Thanks so much for sharing this with us, your time, your story, being so open with it. Uh, let's go ahead and pick up here kind of where we left off with our last episode. How and why did you make the decision to turn state's evidence on your father, Sonny, who once again was New York's last mafia boss and... Uh, carried a lot of weight in the city and probably far beyond the city. Tell us that. Well, at the time I had uh, been living for four or five years, don't hold me specifically, but uh, generally it's, it's pretty close to that. Um, I had got to see a new way of living. Um, I uh, had grown to see the beauty of... Uh, of life and human beings and their value and how much people were there for me and and how much that meant to me. And, you know, I always had lived with uh, a part of me from, uh, from the way I used to think and live, although I loved people and I cared about my friends. Uh, in general, most people were there for me to take from. Uh, their life didn't seem to have a value uh, if the right circumstance came up. Um, as a matter of fact, neither did mine. Uh, you know, I, I understood. You kill me, I kill you. 
Uh, you go to jail, I go to jail, uh, you know, this is our life. We believe in that. And, um, I mean, it, gangsters believe in that. And I was proved wrong in living um, and seeing the way the world works that I didn't see. And for four years, I had had a wonderful life. Um, you know, it's kind of funny because I lived on Section 8 housing and I was receiving $825 a week for disability. And my life was, it was just everything was a new experience. I had more than I needed. Um, I felt rich. People thought I was rich. Um, you'll be surprised that living within your budget can actually do for you. <laughs> make you interesting feel interesting thought you know it's an interesting thought <laughs> I, 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 uh, I would like to take some of those times into today because I tend to take some liberty today that I didn't take back then because it was so new and wonderful and uh, I want to back up for just a minute pardon the interruption <laughs> there but you're talking about living on that 800 plus dollars and this is after an earlier lifestyle of living with what kind of money back in the day I mean it was it was ridiculous I I get kind of embarrassed to tell people my second rehab my brother visited me my brother Michael and said we just bought our second Learjet um, and this one was an eight-seater and the the advantage here was that we didn't have to stop in Kansas to fly all the way to California I mean that was a problem for us we had to make a stop along the way <laughs> and, I, time, and, huh? he, and he told me, just go through this. We don't care what happened. Just get this right. You could use the plane. He says, nothing changes. And we also owned a helicopter at that time. And uh, it, you know, it's just having more money than you need. Um, lavish beyond lavish. Lavish beyond lavish. I mean, uh, you know, it. it's funny. I'll add this. You know, the last nine years, I've dated three girls, none for longer than two months, okay? My life definitely has changed. But what was odd, it's not just the money. There was no shortage of women. <laughs> there was none. I wasn't the same guy as I am today. <laughs> I don't know. It just still confuses me. Uh, well, to... as you used to see people and see a dollar sign, there were probably some of those who would look at you and see that same dollar sign. Yes? I can understand that that could be a part of people's lives the yeah. way it was mine. And, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and it just seemed that uh, where being sick or having HIV or something was a detriment, I had I had found this new way. It was like it wasn't what I was losing or missing because I had HIV. At the time, they might have thought it was AIDS in 1990. I think I got diagnosed in 89, 90. I know it was six months before Magic Johnson, and I'm not sure what they thought it was, but I remember there was more about a loss than... In 2001, when I had this miraculous thing happen to me that day on October 9th, all of a sudden it wasn't about what I wasn't getting because I had HIV, but what I could bring and what I could have and give with it. So, you know, I'm looking at life and everything right before my eyes is like a film that goes from one scene to another. And, uh, and then all of a sudden... Um, a lot of people who knew I was doing well, 
started to imply that I should come back to that life. And I could have said no. I certainly could have. Um, but at that point, the people I was close with, uh, the people I loved, uh, many of them had been in re- recovered themselves. Many of them, not all of them. I, there was a lot of other people in the world, uh, you know, um, that were wonderful. I, I loved them. I was amazed by them, what I had never seen. And, and I knew that if I said no, <clears throat> I don't think this is for everybody, but it, it happened to me like this, that if I said no and I had that right, that I still would be a part of letting it continue. Now, I loved my dad, and I love him to this day. And I loved my friends, and I I know they cared about me. But at some point, what really is love? Um, I love you because you're my father and you're my brother, but you're selling drugs. What about the next-door neighbor's father? What about the next-door neighbor's brother? What kind of love was I seeing? Only when it served me and what I thought was worthy of love, and it, what, it started to come over me, this question. Does it mean I don't love my father? No. But I felt like I had a responsibility. I, I don't mean... It wasn't lack of love toward him. It was a lack of like toward what he was about. And is that accurate? It's accurate. And look, I don't attribute these qualities to me. But at the moment, something passed over me. And maybe it was just a bigger love. Do I love this small piece? Or do I love the whole piece? <clears throat> do I love the whole piece of the puzzle? I like that illustration. I don't know where those words came from. I never said that before. (laughs) I felt it, but I never knew how to express it. It's a hard thing. It's very personal. I don't even know. Uh, I I don't think it came from me. And, And it was just off to the races then. Okay, go ahead and tell us what that means off to the races. Tell us about your recovery. Tell us of any struggles that went with that, the victories, and where you're at today in that. Well, you know, for four years I had not uh, been, I had not had a drink or, or a drug. I had been seeking a greater relationship with, with God. People call him a higher power or whatever spiritual practice you, you practice. And you're getting filled and you're seeing things and you're learning things and people matter. And and, and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, this happens. And it, and it was quite serious. Uh, I had a sponsor who uh, made me spend about six months thinking about this decision. He, I, I trusted him very much. I, I still trust the sponsor I have today with these parts. And he said, whoa, wait a minute. He said, we got to make sure that if you make this decision, you know what this decision really means. By that, the word decision, you're talking witness protection. Yes. Okay. Like I, yeah, exactly. Uh, I knew that would be one of the only things, I mean, that that goes along with it. This was not a decision I could make and not be fully in. Uh, uh, And um, because there could be dire. Dire. Deadly consequences. Deadly consequences. Uh, 
Look, I, I, this sounds crazy, but I think if I only made the decision for me, uh, I wouldn't have been able to make it. Like I said, I, I think it was something of a fraction of a bigger love that gave me the strength to make it and live with it. Uh, and to know that I wouldn't know what it's like to trust in the practices that I had been practicing and that that was the only thing I knew that would get me through. I didn't know what it would be like. Um, look, I, I'm not happy that people went to jail. Uh, at the same time, it if, you know, I mean, we can get into talking about what's a rat. I mean, people called me a rat. I mean, the newspapers write about mob figures my whole life and talking about what a bad guy my dad is, what a bad guy mobsters are. And then... I didn't have any crime. I, I wasn't under arrest. I wasn't being hounded by the FBI. If I didn't help them, I'm going to jail. And like, do we just write these random things? Does that sound like a rat to you? I mean, who knows what I helped stop? I mean, I'm not a good guy for this. I mean, I it just but it, it just was a it seemed good like decision. The, it was a good decision. Uh, and I'm not as even sure as it was. I have a sense that it was, and I'm settled with it. That's the important thing. I Peace mean, in your own heart. Who knows in the end if it's a good or not? I just have a feeling that it is. And uh, so, what did that decision to turn state's evidence to go into the witness protection program? What did that do to the relationship with your dad and with Michael? Well, well, they don't believe in that um, to that extent. Um, I, uh, I know it broke my... It was probably the hardest thing my father ever had to live with. Um, even more than the disappointment that he might have had with my mom and him. They didn't get along very well for a long time. I think it broke his heart. Matter of fact, when I saw him in court, that's the only thing I saw in him was how hurt he was. Uh, and yet at the same time, how he was still Sonny Franzese, but it was visible. Like the only time I ever saw him cry was at my sister's funeral. And that was only for like five minutes while my mother and father held hands. I sat in back of them at church and they were both crying. And that's the only time I ever saw him cry. But when I saw him in court, it was like he'd never cry, but it looked like he was crying. He was brokenhearted that his son had yes. done that to him. Yes. yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And Michael, where did he stand with that? Pretty much same, you know, he couldn't get it, didn't, yeah, he didn't understand your, your actions, your motives. Well, Michael, uh, Michael and my dad were kind of odd couple. Um, they're both very much alike, though they probably didn't think they were. But that's, you know, but they always thought alike. And uh, I, I, you know, I don't know where Michael, I know Michael has said that he doesn't like what I did and all the above. I mean, there's, there's more to be said about how I feel what Michael did in the 80s. Uh, and how that affected me, um, but I, uh, I I think it's hard for him too. I mean, I don't know. Michael still. You want to know how he feels or whatever? Here's 
why I say this speaks more for my brothers and sisters. I put their father in jail, their kid's grandfather in jail. I changed a lot of their lives, and every one of them loves me. That speaks more about who they are and always were. How they feel, my, you know, uh, some of them, uh, you know, I don't want to say that all of them talk to me. A lot of people may not like that they talk to me. So the ones that do talk to me <clears throat> don't like what I did. <laughs> but, I mean, there's a lot of love in my family. It's a peculiar family. Like and love are two separate they, things. They don't always go together. They forgive me, but don't forgive what I did. I don't know how to explain it. I mean, I've been to Michael's house. He invited me. I've spent three days with him. We've seen each other. Other than that, we speak on the phone, even though quite a distance. My, some of my other brothers and sisters, we speak frequently. Uh, you know, my nephews and nieces. I mean... I don't speak to many of them at all, but from what I understand, I I think they'd be mad at me, but I'd still be Uncle John. Yeah, that says more about them than it does, you know. Oh, that's because you're a good guy and you're. A, you, no, it says more about them. I put their grandfather in jail, and they're making that choice to yeah. move to the next level. So, how long was your dad in jail that last time? I think six or seven years. He was, wasn't he right at 100 when he got out of jail? That's why he got released, because he was 100. I think his sentence went to 2019 on one case, and it would have been another 12 years. His actual release date would have been 2031. And he got out in Because he was 100. And that was 2020? 18, I think. 2018. 18, I believe. Okay. Okay. And then it was, tell us about your reconciliation with him. I told the folks earlier, we're going to talk about your crime, your addiction, and your forgiveness slash reconciliation. Tell us about that moment with your dad when you were finally able to get back to see him and speak your heart. You know, uh, that was a personal thing uh, that, uh, you know, there was a fella named Keith and a, a woman named Lisa uh, that are both part of a 12-step program that I got close with. One's my sponsor, one's an older member who's a friend, and uh, they didn't really give me a choice. They said, what kind of guy? Pretty much, hey, he's 100 years old. You better go visit him in his home. Uh, I don't think I would have done it uh, without them or if they didn't tell me that. Uh, Lisa actually got in the car and drove with me, made sure I went. I probably would have, I was looking to kind of, what is it called, Uh, sneak out of it, get out of it. Uh, And I went there and, you know, Randy, the, the best thing I can say is, just like I said about my brothers and sisters, in the end, uh, my dad always was, look, I don't know if it was his ego, his pride, or just his heart. I know it had a piece of his heart in there. My dad, uh, what, how he looked at me and forgave me says more about him than me. Uh, you know, uh, it really does. Uh, 
It says more about who he was and is or was at the end um, than it does about me. Uh, I didn't know that how much I would need to visit him. Keith did and Lisa did. Um, and you were willing. You took the stuff. Yeah, I took the stuff and I went. it could have been. Yeah, I did. And uh, I was really thankful that I did do that. I, I didn't realize how much I needed to finish that. Yes, and he was how old at the time? He was 100. And he lived to be? Another three years. Or I visited him at 101. I don't remember. That's okay. We're close there yeah. within a year. So you know. he lived for another couple, three years after that. Yeah, three years after. And he passed away the uh, February before COVID started in 2020. Okay. Okay. Uh, wow. So I I read... <laughs> When you went to see your dad, he had a question or a comment to make to you that it struck me, but as I've heard you share your language from your background, and he was telling you to get them wrinkles fixed. He's the craziest guy. I didn't realize, he kept talking, he says, what's the matter with your face? Because that's how I said, what do you mean, daddy? He's got all them wrinkles. I'm like, Dad, remember how I used to live? I said, I'm sure I got wrinkles. He, he said, yeah, but we're Francis's. We don't have wrinkles. He's 100 years old, and he don't got wrinkles. So to him, you know, I, I'm thinking that's where he's thinking. <clears throat> and even to the end, like, without trying to show any kind of support for what I did, other than that he forgive me, you go live your life. I love you. You're my son. You're crazy. I don't agree. I'm your dad. Just go your own way. He's telling me, well, listen, <laughs> no, for two years after that, I'm calling him once a month, and we're talking. He's like, oh, hello, hey, listen, uh, I'm busy right now, uh, cousin. Or see, he wouldn't let anyone, if someone was in the office, know that I was calling. But when I did call, he'd keep asking me, don't you have any doctors? Do they have any doctors in Indianapolis? I'm like, yeah, one or two, Dad. They got a few here. And I... Uh, <clears throat> yeah, that's the way he talks. He said, well, when are you going to get your face fixed, get them wrinkles? Uh, after he passed away, I kept thinking of that because you think about the things you talked about. And was, it was kind of odd. to. And then I realized, son of a gun. He wanted me to get and Because he always used to say, you don't pay attention. That's not what I was saying. You don't pay attention. Read it's between the lines. Lines. And it had been so long that I messed around in that life. I wasn't thinking like that. Well, this is subtext, different language. You say go, and it means stay for 10 minutes, then make a left before you leave. <laughs> you know, it was it's yeah. not an easy language. So he was wanting you to go with plastic surgery. surgery. My thought on that, and it's worth next to nothing but the idea if he could recognize you others could and would and where was that going to get you is that he was always thinking, thinking business he, he was always thinking to protect me okay see in the end he was but if he's so smart like nobody He'd never, he said, what do you mean? I was talking about his wrinkles. Look at his face. If anybody, what do you mean? Yep. Why are you telling him to get, I wasn't telling him that. Who told you that? Yep, yep. Look at his yep. face. Unconditional love. Love. To yep. the end, 
yes, regardless. Nice. So, a few personal questions here as we start to wrap this up, okay? I know a lot of them have been personal, but these are directly more so and will help us understand you better, okay? If you had a moment with your dad right now, what would you say to him? What? Maybe it's a piece of unfinished business. Maybe it's just, hey, Dad, here's where I'm at. What would it be? Well, you're going to laugh. You want me to be, I'll be as honest as I can. Please do. I'll say the one thing he said I always said. Let's go eat. (laughs) That's all you want to do is eat, for crying out loud. Well, you know, that takes me. It's to bother him. Yeah, that takes me back to your first episode where you talked about how important Sunday meals were. Well, there you go. A meal with your dad. It wasn't just the food. It was we're together. Right. We're sitting here talking. There it was go. much bigger than what was on the plate, I'm sure. And, uh, yeah, but he wasn't about to say that either, so that insinuation. No. What about with Michael? Uh, let's just say you've got a minute with him. Well, pretty much the kind of the same thing. Uh Anywhere to sit down just to be alone uh, with with him or, you know, he's very busy. Michael's super active, always was. The uh, As we got older, some of the time we shared that we were able to settle down was driving places when we were in the car together. Okay, sure. So stuff of that nature. Hey, you know, I loved money and I loved what it did for me. But uh, make no mistake, uh, I think one thing that differed between me, my dad, and my brother, and that they had in common, they knew for what our life was about, money was important. For me, I knew it was fun and good. But what was important was the three of us. It was really important to me that I was Michael's brother, that I was Sonny's son, not just because of what it did for me, because I really liked them. I liked them when we weren't in dressed up for the game, like watching the fights with my dad. You don't know how me and Michael used to be with the Yankee game. Even if we didn't watch it together, we were on the phone. Every time something happened, we'd call up. Did you see that? Yeah, blah, blah, go. I remember the night Chris Chambliss hit the home run. The Yankees won the pennant against, I think it was Kansas City. It was late. We called him or watching the Yankee game or Met game together. We There was just something to it. Yeah. Uh, when the day was over and Connection. only the game. Connection. It was our spot, you know. Uh, for me, you know, I wasn't going to go to work to miss that. For them didn't make them bad. It's It just mattered more to them, yes, business and got stuff. That. Got that. Yeah. What, what do you think people most misunderstand about you? Well, it, my life is, has, is a kind of life that a lot of people enjoy my past, and I understand that. It's exciting. It's the mob and uh, a lot of characters and there's a lot of uh, entertainers and there's a lot of stuff you, you know there's money and there's privilege and there's p- 
people like tough people and and all of the above and uh you know i i don't regret my past it's really useful because the future holds a lot of people that were gangsters and it's not easy for them for people to talk to them because sometimes they feel they don't understand what it's like but i can then uh People don't understand that I had Learjets and, and tons and tons of money, and, and that was great. But then there are some people that are really wealthy who have a hard time talking with people that might not have been wealthy, but I can, um, et cetera, et cetera. Like, yes. I could say I lived on the street. I could say I, I roamed the country really well uh, I sat with super wealthy people I hung out with people like myself uh, I I think they don't quite get something I said today at a at a 12-step meeting uh, for me the the idea of surrender seemed to have an air of less means more I don't think they really understand I don't think they need to I don't think they need to, but but I don't feel like they get that yeah. in me. I, I feel they get other parts of me. Okay. The parts they choose to get. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, yeah. they only can, you know. I exactly. Don't know. Yeah. So when all's said and done and they close the casket, what is it you'd most like to be remembered for? Wow. Well, I'd be lying if I wouldn't like people to remember me. I'd be lying. I do. Um, you know, it's the parts of my life that intersected theirs that might not be so noticed that it was me, but that it carries with them into their children and stuff. Whether or not they know it's me, I'm not quite sure I mind but that there are certain things I do and the meaning of life and the way I look at things. I, I hope parts of that go on with them, more so than them remembering me. Uh, though I also, of course, there's a part of me would like people 10 years later to say, hey, remember Matt? Don't you miss Matt being here, yelling at everyone at the meeting, <laughs> telling everyone they're doing it wrong? So you, you just mentioned the word meeting. Yeah. Tell the folks where you're at in life right now, the kind of outreach and ministry you're doing, the kind of folks that you are uh, touching their lives. Share that. Okay. I uh, First, I, I would like to mention the place I uh, I get, get to work at. Uh, it's called Prana House. Is that okay to mention? Absolutely. All where right. is it located? It's located in Indianapolis. And uh, we also have two other houses in Indianapolis, one on Pennsylvania, the main one, and then one on Euclid, and one on De Quincey Street, very close together, 14 minutes between all houses. I want to mention uh, two great guys, Corey, who's a full-blown st staff member. Um, he came in there through uh, a treatment center, stood there, Ended up getting a job, actually gets paid, and quite frankly, he does a job better than I do. Uh, I might have a little more experience than him, 
but he's on top of it. I'm kind of impressed. Uh, awesome. And then we have a guy named Bo, uh, who is not a full-blown staff member, but he's the house manager at, at Euclid. And uh, you know what I, I want to say about the houses is uh, I tell the guys, first of all, my bosses, Yair, Ran, and his, Yair's wife, Edith, because I'm sure Ron's wife helps too. They live in Israel. They're a long distance away. Somehow or another, they hired me when I wasn't looking for a job, unexpectedly, insisted I work there as if I had already said yes. I had been messing around with sober living homes for 18 years prior, and I, I didn't want any more. I'm tired. <laughs> and, you know, and all of a sudden, I'm hired for a job I didn't look for. And... uh one of the things I have to give credit for or why we get to do what we do is because Yair, Ron, and Edith trusted that there's a certain way I would like to do this. It's their business. Um, but they, they trust in me. That trust passes down to Corey and Bo. However, any success we have, is based on how the guys are. The guys are doing really well. It makes us look like we're doing a really good job. It's People come up to me and say, you're doing a great job, you're doing a great job, you're doing a great job. I said, yeah, I know, because look at these guys. They make me look like I do a good job. Um, and what I, what I tell all the guys when they come in, I kind of shock them. My, their initial meeting with me is, well, this guy's going to be tough. I say, listen, do you know the difference between treatment and recovery? And they all try to come up with it. I'm like, no, here's the difference. In treatment, treatment caters to you. Treatment has to cater to you, the facility, the hospital. And that's a good thing because that's what I needed but once I'm done with treatment, there may be some advantages I could bring over. But recovery is about me catering to my sobriety in my life. In other words, welcome to the world. I'm now going to grow up. We don't cater to the guys, nor do we have any tolerance. Now we do. We have a lot more tolerance than we say. But we let them think that. I, I like that that explanation of the differences between them. The both are necessary. Absolutely. Both are necessary. One couldn't do without the other, but you gotta know the difference. Because because although we get sober together, nobody could surrender for me. Yes. People try to say the we in the wrong form. I surrender and become a part of the we. Because nobody could take the drink away for me. If you could, you would. They wouldn't be where they're at. Right, I'd be. take a ton. I'd be doing that. We'd be having yes. a ball. Yes. We'd be having a ball. It would be the other way around. Everyone would stop, would be able to let go of that. Wow. I, and, yeah. Right? I, it makes some kind of... And what makes I, sense to me. And in this place, uh, it's, 
It's an interesting place. I would say um, some places are for different things, and it's just the way they are. Like, we have a responsibility to the community. We let the community dictate to us. I mean, we have a job description there and a function, but sometimes the community gravitates a certain way. Now, I just can't take anybody into that house that isn't where the house is at. And that's okay. Sometimes it's hard because there are other houses for other other, uh, situations that people came in. Like, I had no money and nowhere to go, so I had to go to a house that was able to feed me. In other words, I didn't have the luxury to say, no, I want to go to that house because it's nicer and you got more freedom. See, I had done what I did to my life. And if I surrender, I go to the best place for me. So my community, our community, I owe that responsibility to them. Do you know how many treatment centers want me to just take anyone in? Let me ask you something. Do you think it's fair to take somebody out of treatment? We don't feed people. Like, we don't provide food. It's just the way we're structured. No no one's going to starve in our house. However, can you imagine a young man or woman, we don't take women, we're a men's house, but coming out of treatment in a place where they got to leave at 9 a.m. and can't come back till 3, have to be at meetings, have to look for jobs, don't even have money for food or cigarettes. Now, we're not, that's not what we do. So I have to say, no, you got to go to a different place, man, like I did. Because, because the, we found that when we take that, a lot of people in like that, that aren't quite, set up for our house, that the community suffers. The guys suffer because there's more chance of people using quickly and uh, disrupting the community. And, you know, there's, we have, uh, we have room for a certain amount of scholarships that we do, but we can't scholarship everybody. Because we're not capable without upsetting the guys that are doing what they need to do. There's a responsibility to them. The guys, in turn, feel very secure that their community, that they have something to say about it. I'm not just winging. My boss doesn't say, fill the house no matter what. Fill the house no matter what. We'll just let him get jobs. We'll just... And for three weeks, the guy's starving, can't smoke, he's hustling. What? That's a setup. Why? Because he comes out of treatment and he wants to go to a place that's easier for him or he thinks is easier, that's really harder. So we get to do these things and... We adjust our rules to the individual and how they're doing, and nobody minds. I love the way you said we get to do these things. Mm. And I'm going to go back to your boss's wife, Edith. 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 Yes, they're from Israel, so they're all Israeli Uh names. All right. (laughs) She brought you into this when it was not a bit or a piece of your plan it kind of uh. makes me think of your upbringing and your same way of being <laughs> brought into the mob yeah, right. mafia okay it may not have been a part of your plan but no. it was gonna be either way yeah so 
This has been an incredible opportunity, Matt. Thank you for it. Uh, one final question here. Our podcast is titled Faith in Your Recovery. What does that title mean to you personally? Faith in Your Recovery. Well, in 2001, October night, something happened to me. I didn't have the power. I didn't have the ability to surrender anymore. It was gone. Something came and happened to me. Ten minutes after that, another human being came up to me and recognized something and shook my hand and talked to me. That person was me. But there was also something in him I wasn't, was 18 years of trust and hope and manifestation of the presence of God in his life that passed through him and was placed in me. I didn't have any experience to justify knowing that hope, touching that hope, because none of my life looked like I had it, but yet it was in me. Um, faith is constantly, <laughs> constantly um, doing the best I can to break down me. Now, I don't break it down to trust again each moment. Uh, you know, I, I sometimes feel guilty um, today, and it's really hard for me. I mean, I, I love the program and meetings, but... Uh, and maybe I should know better for the sake of others, but sometimes I find it hard to say that. You know, I, I believe in the, the birth of Jesus Christ through a virgin and uh, written by the prophets, and he lived 33 years and uh, suffered, died, and was buried and did all kinds of good on this earth and, and rose again on the third day. And uh, I think of what it was like for him to love the people that were killing him. And, uh, and forgive them while it was happening. And, uh, you know, I, I, it's hard for me to say that, much less say it over a radio uh, today. But faith in, in that whatever I believe in has happened and, and will continue to happen, uh, that the world's evolving and that somehow this chaos is going to all look wonderful and we're going to see each other differently. Uh, and um, I think I was given a miracle. And, uh, <laughs> and I owe something for that. Uh, I'll finish with this. There's a saying that I like to read where ten people were healed from a horrible disease. And only one came back to thank him. Uh, I don't think he was mad at that person, those people. But I think what might have been being said was that the person that came back really got the joy. A 
men. <laughs> that is what you've shared with us. This has so. been an incredible opportunity, a story that a lot of people don't get a chance to hear, experience, and your willingness to share it with us here today has been beyond beyond a blessing to us and to those who will who will tune in to this episode and hopefully the two previous ones. They'll get three shots at what you've shared. We give you thanks for who you are today and even who you were then because that was a part of what got you here. So God bless. Go in peace. And the same to you folks out there. Thank you. Make sure you check in on us here at Faith in Your Recovery. Like, subscribe, send us a note, email us at podcast at ablbh.org. Hey, we want to get involved. We're going to have more great things to share with you. We look forward to you as a part of our listening audience. Hang in there. Don't give up. Continue to fight that battle day by day. Be blessed and be a blessing. Amen. Amen.